Our venue across campus and then our Cactus Campus are joining us right now for our teaching time in the Word. And before I dive into the last chapter of Nehemiah in the series that we've been in, I want to make one comment out of Nehemiah that affects this week at our church. Uh, As many of you know, the book of Nehemiah starts off with prayer. In fact, chapter 1 is all about prayer. And I said to you in week 1 that if you counted, you will find that in 13 chapters, you will catch Nehemiah directly praying to God 12 times in 13 chapters, which is about once a chapter. I mean, the whole book is about prayer as the seedbed for revival and the movement of God's Spirit in our midst. And the reason that that's important is that you're going to see today in chapter 13, Nehemiah is going to pray twice, is that uh, we are gathering as a church this Wednesday night. We don't do it all that often. I mean, maybe three or four times a year where we call all the church together for a concentrated time of prayer. And so I, as your pastor, invite you. I I don't want to, how do I want to do this? I'll just say invite. I invite you uh, to be here this Wednesday night uh, with us because I think it's important for the life of our church to take an hour of our time and concentrate in prayer together. And as you know, we're praying for Easter and then also for, in May, our Park Fest. I just don't think we have a right to ask God to move in our midst when we have 10,000 people coming to visit here at Easter if we're unwilling to pray about it. Amen? I I just think it's that important, so it wasn't a really robust amen, but I think most of you meant amen. But I I, I just think we all agree theologically that it's important that we gather to prayer. So if for some reason you just can't make it Wednesday night, then maybe during the hour of 6.30 to 7.30, wherever you are, that you'll throw up some prayers so that we can all be praying unified. But I hope you can make it here, and uh, we'll have you out by 7.30 so that you can go get dinner somewhere here in our fair city. We're going to go to Nehemiah right now, so one more time, let me just ask God's blessing on his word. Father, uh, we want to talk about a very, very important subject today that is core to your character, that is core to your heart, this idea of holiness. So bless us, we pray. Give us wisdom, ears to hear, and eyes to see that which you've revealed to us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the deal with holiness. I just don't hear many Christians talk about it all that often. And the ones that do talk about it are the ones that are, quite frankly, really holy, right? I mean, the ones that talk about holiness are people like your grandmother or your really religious cousin or maybe somebody that led you to Christ. I, if I'd estimate, I only hear about 10, maybe 20% of Christians, 1 in 5 or 1 in 10, ever even utter the word on a regular basis. And I think one of the reasons is, is that we're kind of uh, scared of the word holy. It feels kind of daunting to us. In fact, the way many Christians talk about holiness, it, they seem to think of a, a distant God who's kind of angry with us, complete with a bunch of self-righteous followers, kind of a more holier than thou. I mean, that's the way many people seem to view holiness uh, as far as a Christian trait. And the reality is that couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, Holiness is core to the character of God, and get this, it's key to the revival of his people. And it's a great, awesome, life-giving trait once we understand it rightly and apply it regularly in our lives. And I think one of the things that holds some of us back when it comes to being holy is that we just don't get it. We don't understand what it is and why it is so important. 
So as we get to the very last chapter of the book of Nehemiah, this book that's helping us understand how to get a second win with God, let's talk about holiness because it's all over this chapter. And as I always do, let me just give you a main point up front so that we all get it. Uh, there's just blank lines in your outline because I didn't get the outline in on time. Shame on me. But the reality is, is that I have a PowerPoint for you. So look up here on this screen and cactus and venue on your screens. Here is holiness and why it's important. And that is that holiness matters because it allows you and me to become set apart and submitted to God. That's all holiness is. It matters greatly. It's core to what it means to walk with God. Why? Because it allows you and I to be set apart from sinful and unhealthy things around us. And then positively, it allows us to be submitted to God relationally in our lives. Now, I want to show you what this means and how this is in play in the final chapter here of Nehemiah. And to do this, I need to walk you briefly through this chapter and show you the four major movements of this chapter, four distinct scenarios that all have to do with this revival component of holiness. And as I walk through each of these, here's what I want you to do, because this will be really important for you and I applying this later. As I walk you through each of these four distinct scenarios in this chapter, I want you to notice how God's people in each one of them are setting themselves apart from something sinful around them in the world around them, but then coupling it with submitting to God in the same area that they were separating from. In other words, their holiness is what you're going to see. Their holiness will involve both a letting go of something unhealthy and sinful, but then positively a grabbing on of some aspect of God that is healthy and godly. What Larry Crabb calls detaching and attaching. That's holiness. We detach from something that's not healthy for our souls and attach in a fresh way to God. And holiness... I need you to see more than anything else today involves both. Let me show you what I mean. When you look close at chapter 13, you will notice that there are four movements that we could give these four headings to. There's a worship movement, a temple movement, a Sabbath rest movement, and then an intermarriage movement. And each of these are going to give us four pictures added up together of holiness. So first, notice the worship movement in verses 1 through 3. It tells us in verse 1 that as the people in Nehemiah's day uh, read the Old Testament law, remember they were reading the Old Testament law because they'd been so far from it for so many years, that as they read the Old Testament law, they realized that the law forbade outsiders from engaging in ceremonial temple worship. It says in verse 1, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite, those would be neighboring nations, should ever enter the assembly of God. This is clearly found in Deuteronomy chapter 23, that because the Jewish religion was set up for Jewish people, for God's people, we'll talk about that more in a minute, for God's chosen nation, that it didn't mean that outsiders couldn't live within the nation, they could, but they could not engage in the ceremonial worship with the Jews. That was only for God's people. 
And up to this point in Nehemiah, they'd been ignoring this. So it says in verse 3 that they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent, the implication being that they just separated them during times of ceremonial worship. So this wasn't racism, it was just worship purity. And they did this so that they would set themselves apart, so that they would detach and have purity in worship so that they could attach to God and submit to him once again as a nation. So you got set apart and submitted just in the first three verses of Nehemiah 13. Now, hang on to that. Notice with me a second movement, this time having to do with the newly rebuilt temple. And this is found in verses 4 through 13. And it describes a scenario where a certain priest, an Old Testament holy man, had allowed one of the temple chambers, which was a storeroom used to house articles of worship and to house the tithes, he had allowed a temple chamber storeroom to be used as a bed and breakfast by a non-Jew named Tobiah. Now, this might seem innocent to you and me, but this was a big deal for the holiness of Israel back then. You might remember that the temple was a very sacred place where God's presence was felt and where God's presence was for the nation Israel's, where they met God. And, and so this really did two things when they allowed Tobiah to make his bed and breakfast there in the temple chamber. It made something sacred, the temple, into something non-sacred by allowing a, a non-Jew and a bad one at that to live there. And then secondly, it made it so that they couldn't store the temple articles used for worship and the tithes in that storeroom. They had to be stored elsewhere. And so in order to set apart and submit, to detach and attach, it says in verse 9 that Nehemiah cleansed the chambers after kicking Tobiah out and then brought back the articles for worship, including the tithes and offerings for the priests. So again, just simply notice, you got a set-apart and submitted theme going on here, all in the context of holiness. Then notice a third movement, and this one's very easy for you and I to get, because if you've ever gone to Sunday school at all, you know this one, and it's all about Sabbath rest. This is described in verses 15 to 22. In short, the Old Testament law, specifically the Ten Commandments for crying out loud, say that for six days you shall work and on the seventh day you shall rest. Good, you went to Sunday school. That's the fourth commandment out of the Big Ten. The only problem was is that Israel in Nehemiah's day was not doing this. They were manufacturing, selling, and trading all on the Sabbath and even worse inside the holy city of Jerusalem. So again, in keeping with this theme of, uh, of being set apart and submitting, it says in verse 19 that Nehemiah commanded that the doors to the city should be shut. Again, he's detaching himself from this sinful activity. And then in verse 22, he says, I did this to keep the Sabbath day holy. So let's submit to God in this area, guys. That's what he's saying. So hopefully you're seeing the pattern here being set in, in chapter 13. Detach, attach, letting go, grabbing on, setting ourselves apart, and then submitting to God. And then you have a fourth scenario. And this one's the hardest hitting and the hardest one for our 21st century multicultural American minds to get around. But it has to do with intermarriage. And this is found in, in, in the remaining verses of the chapter here. And it simply goes like this. 
the, the, the Israelites had been in exile for 140 years. Do the math. That's seven generations at least. And during that time, they had been taken over by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and now the Persians. And so it would only be natural during that time, having been so distant from God and his law, that they began intermarrying with the nations around them. The only problem was is that this was forbidden in the law. And again, it's not that God was being racist or anything like that. It's just that, as we're seeing in a minute, God chose a particular nation, Israel, to be set apart for his holiness, to be set apart as an example of his character, and they would worship in Hebrew, they would communicate to God in Hebrew, Jews still do that today, and if you intermarry and bring in all these other languages and customs and all that, it's going to get out of control real quick. So the law forbade intermarrying if you remained or if you were Jewish. It's just that they were doing that back then. And so, again, in keeping with this theme of holiness, Nehemiah confronts them on this and asks them to set themselves apart. And then he says, just take an oath that in the future there will be no more intermarrying. So again, he asks them to submit to God. And this is where one of the tougher verses in all of the, 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 the book comes in. And in verse 25, it says that, that Nehemiah even beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Yikes, I can remember reading that like a year ago when I was getting ready for this series. And I thought, how do you preach that? I mean, he beat them up and he pulled out their hair. I'm thankful for the Bible experts, the commentators. Most of them point out that this was not a punitive thing. This just shows us that he was receiving resistance from those around him, and even violent resistance. And so he had to get physical with them in order to get them to fall in line with God's holiness. And I would just simply point out two things based on that. One, it shows how serious God is about holiness, and that secondly, you should be thankful that pastors don't apply this same way today. Because I don't know of too many pastors that get physical with their sheep, though sometimes I know they want to. So <laughs> you have four distinct scenarios that, that, let's admit it, seems somewhat strange to our culture today. I mean, no foreigners in worship, no outsiders living in the temple, uh, keeping the Sabbath pure and no intermarrying, but all designed to show one thing and one thing only, and that is that holiness matters. And core to holiness is this twofold ability to become set apart from the sinful things around you and then submitted to God in every area of your life. And so if you're looking for a core summary verse of this chapter, just look up here on the screen. Look at verse 30 because this says it all. Nehemiah says, and I cleansed from them everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites. So lock on to that. Cleansed and established. Set apart and submitted. Detached and attached. That's holiness. And that's what we see here in four living pictures in Nehemiah 13. Now, once you and I understand that, there's a couple of things that we have to do before we can apply this to our lives. And one of the first things we need to do is take a moderately brief excursion here and be very careful to distinguish in our understanding of chapter 13 here between Israel's unique call as a nation in their cultural and national holiness and what God sets as a standard for you and I today 
for holiness. You're saying, what are you talking about? Here's what we need to understand. Israel in the Old Testament was completely under God's law. The purpose of God's law, we know from reading the New Testament, was twofold. It was to, one, show God's purity and character and holiness by selecting a nation, Israel, and placing her under his law to show the perfect purity and character of God, but then secondly, also to reveal to the onlooking world that there's no way you can meet up to God's complete, holy, perfect standard found in his law, that you're a sinner who's in need of forgiveness, and that's why Christ, God's son, came. So when you read the Old Testament, you have to read the Old Testament in light of that. That that God's law in many ways was designed for the nation Israel so that he could do his revealing work in and through Israel. And as a result of this purpose, there will be things that we see in the Old Testament that were definitely true and holy for Israel because they were God's set-apart nation But they don't necessarily stand true for all nations or even for God's people in New Testament times and today. And some of you are getting a little bit itchy right now. So you're saying, like what? Well, how about certain dietary restrictions? Know any Christians that read those in the Old Testament and say, better be following that? Not too many. There's a few, but not too many at all. We realize that those were ceremonial things for Israel during their time of holiness as a nation? Or how about all the ceremonial laws found in the Old Testament? Again, we don't live those today because those were for Israel during a time of sacrifice. But with the time of Christ, that's now been laid aside. And there's even various penal sanctions and some very strict marital laws that were part of what theologians call the civil law, the civil culture of Israel that again when you look at the 400 plus laws in the Old Testament you realize that was for Israel's holiness but there might be a different standard for you and I today as New Testament followers of Jesus and though it's debated and this is where it gets really dicey which of the 400 plus Old Testament laws were for Israel and which might still apply today and that's for another sermon here's what might encourage you in Nehemiah 13 here With every commentary that I consulted this week, they all agreed that excluding foreigners from ceremonial worship, ethnic intermarrying, a strict Saturday Sabbath, and temple chamber room usage uh, are all things that applied to Israel in 433 B.C. for her holiness, but not necessarily as a standard for holiness for you and I today. These were for Israel under the law, But but these are things that are under the law that don't necessarily apply to you and I today. But let's now be really clear on something and not miss the whole point of this chapter. This doesn't mean that you and I don't have our own clear New Testament and even certain Old Testament standards of holiness. We do. And so God looks at you and I today, don't miss this, and he applies the same definition of holiness. This idea of being set apart and submitted to him It's just that it's based on New Testament teachings and commands and then rightly understood even certain Old Testament ones, like clearly the Ten Commandments, of which nine are repeated in the New Testament in command form. So let me give you some examples. But what are some things that define our holiness today? I thought of just four categories. How about sexual purity? 
I mean, in the New Testament, it talks about how you need to enter into marriage with a person that you're betrothed to, and then how to function within marriage with fidelity and faithfulness. It even gives clear instructions on what to do when the marriage goes south and how to God, follow God in your holiness. Or how about relational purity? How to love your neighbor as yourself and all the other one another passages that are in the New Testament. Even how to treat those who are in need. Or how about moral purity? I love it when people say to me, you know, the Bible's not a list of do's and don'ts. I go, what are you smoking? Have you read it? I mean, I know that the Bible, as we'll talk about here in a minute, talks about the fact that God is a relational God and that we relate to him as father through grace. I'll get to that in a minute. But, but, but think about your own family. Just because you love your kids doesn't mean you don't have rules. Amen? We do. And God's got rules for us. There's lots of moral do's and don'ts just in the New Testament alone. I, I, I mean, let me give some examples here. Don't ever lie. Don't swear. Work really hard. Obey the laws of the land. Submit to earthly authorities. I can give you chapter and verse for every one of those right from the New Testament. And those types of, that type of moral purity defines our set-apartness. And then you got spiritual purity. I mean, there's a whole spiritual category in the New Testament of like spending time with God in prayer and reading his truth, fellowshipping with other Christians, learning to share your faith, confessing sin. These are all barometers of our holiness. So I like how Mervyn Brenneman says it in his commentary on Nehemiah when he puts it this way. Look up here on the screen. This is helpful. This will bridge Nehemiah with you and me today. He says, a new era of Jewish worship has started with Nehemiah's reforms. Worship according to prescribed legal principles. It was with the coming of Christ, however, that another era was commenced in which the legal burden was removed from the shoulders of mankind and placed in Jesus's vicarious suffering on the cross. It is the new era of faith and love in Jesus Christ. So the definition and contours of holiness has never changed. Don't miss that, guys. It always has been and always will be this twofold process of being set apart and then submitted to God. That's holiness. The application, however, does change from the Old Testament to the New Testament based upon God's purposes with Israel as a nation in their holiness and his purposes today with you and I as a New Testament church. What some people call the difference between law and grace. And it was with this understanding, now that we've laid all of this out, that you and I are now ready to take off and apply this. Because here's what I have noticed about holiness and Christians over the years. Given the definition that we have of holiness, look up here on the screen, and that is this idea of being set apart, give me a clicker, being set apart and then submitted, set apart from the sinful things around you and then submitted to God. I find that a lot of Christians today struggle with having a balanced holiness, with emphasizing both sides of the equation here, being set apart and relationally submitted. I find, in fact, that many Christians tend to emphasize one side of this or the other and tend to be out of whack in their walk with God. And you're saying, well, what do you mean? I have found today that there are Christians that tend to be really good, give me another click here, guys, at, at the set-apart-only aspect of holiness, 
And then there's a whole other set of Christians that are really good at the submit relationally to God part of holiness. In other words, we choose one side of this or the other. And here's the danger that happens when you do so. Look up here on the screen. If your holiness becomes a set-apart only holiness, you will fall into legalism, I promise you. And I'll show you how that works in just a second here. But conversely, if your holiness becomes a submit relationally only holiness, where you see God as some cosmic buddy and your really good divine friend that you have a conversation with all the time, but you don't set your life apart from, from the world around you, then it will fall into what theologians call licentiousness, which is simply a big $10 word that means a moral free-for-all. In other words, you will live a loose moral life and not end up pleasing your friend, God. And, and, and so here's what happens. When a person only emphasizes the set-apart aspect of holiness, they become really good at avoiding sin or doing this or not doing that, but not really good at trusting God relationally with their very lives. And so their Christianity becomes reduced to a lifestyle based upon being set apart with a few doctrines thrown in, but they lose a heart of grace and what it really means to relate to God as Father and Jesus as the Son and our brother. And i got to tell you, I've seen so many Christians like this during the years, and at the end of the day, they're just no fun to be around. Amen? I mean, they're serious and they're sober, and they got their morality down, and there's no joy, and they're judgmental as the day is long. Because they don't have the heart of the Father, and they don't know what it means to relate to God as Father and to submit positively to Him. They're just always on the defense, making sure they're set apart. But then conversely, you got a whole other group of Christians who are really good at relating to God and in this way prioritizing Him and submitting to Him relationally. They talk about Him a lot and they go to Bible studies and He's their good buddy and all that. But they don't have much of a set-apart aspect to their lives. They live rather loose, even disobedient, even according to New Testament standards. And therein lies a profound immaturity. Because if the one group reduced their, care, uh, their, their Christianity to a lifestyle, then this group reduces their Christianity to a shallow relationality. And they kind of become like a 24-year-old kid who's still living at home and is jobless. Can you, re can you picture that? Some of you don't want to picture that because you're there right now. But, but, you know, a 24-year-old kid who, who went to college and, 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 and should be getting a job, but didn't get a job and all this, and is still living at home, I, I mean, you might like seeing them at breakfast and they make you laugh and all that, but then you're going to work and they're not. And there's something wrong with that picture. And, and you're just going as lovingly as you can. As I said to my kid as she graduated last year, I said, you do know you better get a job. You know, because I don't want to be greeting you every morning and have you just watching TV all day while I go work. And we have a lot of Christians like that. They're all enthusiastic and they're all excited and the rest of us are working hard and they're kind of just, just sort of floating through life. Living a rather lax, loose, moral life. Not set apart at all. And here's the deal, guys. Each of these extremes are unhealthy and even dangerous. Each of them miss what true holiness is all about. The kind of holiness that brings revival, the kind of holiness that is both set apart and both submitted to God.
Uh, one of the biggest questions I want to ask you as we go to the communion table right now and Cactus and Venue, I'm asking you guys as well, is, is do you resonate with this at all? I mean, as you do an audit of your spiritual life, which might you be? Some of you are tempted to say, well, you know, I'm really good at balancing it out. I'm both. And, and if you say that today, I would say to you, good. Uh, I, I think a key barometer of that is how arrogant or humble you are about it. And so if you can dare say that you've balanced out holiness really well, I sure hope you say that with a there but for the grace of God go I mentality. When we go to the communion table here in a moment, that you just thank God humbly that he has allowed you to understand what it means to be set apart and what it understands it means to be submitted to him. But I think, I think some of us, if we're really honest with ourselves today, if you did an audit of your spiritual life, you'd say, you know what, I, I, I struggle with this, Jamie. I, I resonate with maybe being set apart. I'm really serious. I'm really sober. I'm very vigilant about my life morally, but I, I really do lack a lot of joy, <laughs> and I lack a lot of grace, and I really don't, even when you talk about the heart of the Father and things like that, I have no idea what you're talking about. But then conversely, there might be some of you here today that are honest with yourselves, and you, and, and, and you say, you know what, I'm the, I'm the life of the spiritual party. I, I get it. God's a God of grace. He loves me. He relates to me. He's forgiven me for all of my sin. I get that. But, yeah, there's some parts of my life where if only you knew about them, I'd be really embarrassed and ashamed that you knew that. Because I'm really not living as set apart as I know God wants me to be. See, I, I think we need to do an audit of our lives, examine our lives, and stop faking it till we make it. Amen? We need to stop that. Larry Crabb says church is the safest place on planet earth, or should be. <laughs> it's a place where you and I can get honest and stop faking it. We had the uh, youth orchestra here today, so Cactus and Venue, you, you, you missed it, but we had a, a, a the wonderful youth orchestra here, and as they were playing earlier, I couldn't help but being reminded about when I was an eighth grade band. And, and I know it's hard for some of you to picture me playing an instrument. It was pathetic even at the time, but I... I did. I, I, I played trumpet. And I was an awful trumpet player. I didn't work very hard. I was irresponsible. I didn't take it very seriously. My parents made me do it. And so I, you can fill in all the gaps on that one. And I was in eighth grade band. And if you know anything about band, they have what they call first, second, and third sections, and then chairs within each of those sections. And I was in the third section, <laughs> and, and I was like the third chair. And what really stinks about the third section is you never get to play any of the fun notes. And so, you know, the guys in the first section are playing all the melody, and then the guys in the third section get like E minor, and you know, it's just awful. You know, you're playing stuff that doesn't make sense. And so I was already joyless, and that made me even more joyless, being in the band. But here's what happened one day. One day the teacher announced that we were going to have a challenge day. And I said, what's a challenge day? And he said, on this particular day, you're going to learn a piece of music, and whoever plays it the best advances up from section to section and even chairs within a section just based on this one challenge. Now, I've never been the most responsible. I was not the most responsible kid, but I've always been fairly bright. I did the math on that and said, so you're telling me all i got to do is master one piece of music, and I can move up like in one day just like that as fast as can be? And the teacher said, yes. I've since come to find out that sometimes teachers will set a limit on how much you can move up, which obviously would make sense, because I totally abused the system in eighth grade. I mean, for two weeks, I thought, well, this is easy. And I went home, and I mastered the piece on the trumpet, and I played it flawlessly. I mean, how hard is that? And it came to challenge day, and I went from third chair, third section, to first, seconds, first, first section, second chair. 
in one 15-minute slot. Uh, yeah, and I thought, this is easy. I thought, this is great. But you know what? <laughs> it wasn't real. Because did I tell you I didn't practice much? I wasn't a good trumpet player. And so even though I was able to advance on that day, as soon as we started to learn other music, it became very evident that they had the wrong guy in first section. And the teacher forever cursed the day that he allowed Rasmussen to go into the first section. And then I got to my freshman year of college and a marching band, and they marched me right down to third section right again. And that's when I quit and hung up my trumpet. See, I think there are many Christians that live like that, amen? I, I, I mean, we think, and we have other people convinced that we're in the first section and that we're in the second chair because we somehow manipulated our way there. But truth be known, when we start playing our tune, it doesn't sound very good. <laughs> I think today is a good day for us to get honest. I think today is a good day to ask yourself, what section are you in? The scriptures say that when you go to the communion table, it says this in 1 Corinthians, you should examine yourself and your spiritual life. They, they did it in that context based on unity versus disunity, but I think it's broader than that. It tells us we should examine ourselves. And I think it's a good time for you and I today and for Cactus and Venue for us to examine ourselves when it comes to holiness. I, I can promise you this, the future of our church, and I'm not overstating this, really does depend on everything we've talked about in this series. Because we've talked about prayer and wisdom and overcoming obstacles. As of late, as we've talked about truth, brokenness, commitment, and joy, and now holiness. These are the makers or breakers of revival. We're building a wonderful new facility here on Shea. We've launched our Cactus Campus. We're going to do more multi-sites in the future. We're going to do church planting. We've got a lot of big plans. But, but I'm telling you, all that means nothing if God's people are not set apart and submitted to God. And so let's now each individually examine our own hearts. How set apart are you? When it comes to the standards that God has for you, not perfection, but how set apart are you to his service with clean hands and a pure heart? And once you've asked that question, just so you don't become a legalist, how submitted are you relationally to God? Do you know that he loves you and that his grace is stronger than anything that can come your way in life and that he longs to be your father and Jesus longs to be your brother and your friend, your Lord and your Savior? Let's bring these two together. Let's marry them in true holiness today. Let's begin by examining ourselves and laying this out before God. The ushers are going to come forward right now to receive or to hand out communion. They're going to stop in their stations. And then at Cactus and Venue, I've asked the ushers to come forward as well. And so as the ushers are getting set, here's what we're going to do. In all three of our congregations right now, we're going to sing the same song. And it's a song that we sang earlier of Give Us Clean Hands. And if you want to sing this song during communion and use this as a time, again, to submit your life to him, to set yourself apart, then do so. If you want to just quietly sit there and cactus and venue you as well and, and worship God and do an examination of your life, then use this time for that as well. Hold the elements. We're all going to partake together. But let's examine our lives. Let's lay before God the state of our hearts and our minds that he might give us clean hands and give us a pure heart. And then I'll lead us in partaking together and close our time together. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. 
Father God, I thank you for the clarity of your scriptures that even in richly historical chapters like Nehemiah 13 here, we get a rich sense of what holiness is about. So Lord, I thank you for these four living pictures of holiness that have to do with worship, the temple, the Sabbath, and even with marriage. And though, Lord, we are not today under the ceremony on civil parts of the law for Israel, Lord, we have now a completion of the law in Jesus, complete with a whole new set of spirit-filled standards and what it means to be a follower of your Son. And so, Lord, as we give thought to those today, what it means for us to be set apart, God, may you speak to our hearts and our minds now, even our spirits, by your Holy Spirit. Help each of us to do wonderful business with you. And Lord, as we get honest about our lives, as we get honest about what other people see, but what we know is really there, God, may we lay before you either our need to be more set apart or our need to be submitted to you relationally, or Lord, maybe even just thank you for the Christian maturity that you've given us and to continue to protect us in that maturity. So God, we yield to you right now. We give you the right of way in our lives and ask that you might have your way and even sway with our minds and hearts now in our congregation. Meet us through these elements, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.